Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Good morning, everybody. This is uh, Richard Fontaine, the CEO of CNAS. Thanks to everybody for joining us. Um, at CNAS, as uh, some of you know, we um, have been committed to addressing the most important issues of the day. We've been uh, spending a lot of our time uh, on coronavirus issues and the impact that that has for the wide variety of national security um, elements that we look at. Um, but we're also uh, find it important to look at the longer term issues that confront uh, the United States and the challenges uh, and how best uh, to respond to them. Uh, this year, CNES launched the America Competes 2020 initiative. This is uh, an initiative that aims to capture the best ideas for how the United States can strengthen its strategic advantages both at home and abroad. And the report that we've virtually gathered uh, together to discuss uh, this morning and that we're launching this morning fits squarely into that theme. Uh, forging an alliance innovation base is consonant with the America Competes campaign in two different ways. One, it focuses on securing vital US technology advantages. And two, it focuses on revitalizing US alliances. This report is been written by Dan Kleiman, uh, Ben Fitzgerald, Christine Lee, and Josh Fitt. And what they did is lay out a blueprint for a community of technology, innovation, and protection that's anchored by the United States and our allies. Um, and the report itself has a clear and really a pretty profound starting point that the United States is steadily losing ground in the race against China to pioneer the most important technologies of the 21st century. So how do we address this problem? Um, they posit that the only way for the US to tip the scales back into our own favor is to deepen innovation linkages with allies. And they go through several allies that they examine in depth about how we can do this. And they argue that unless the United States builds this community, what they call an alliance innovation base, then it will steadily lose ground in this contest uh, with China to ascend the commanding technological heights of the 21st century. Uh, so those are the stakes uh, that we have laid out before us in uh, what they address here in this report. Um, it's an exciting, uh, clear and compelling presentation, a real blueprint for where the United States and its closest allies should go uh, from here on these issues. So with that, let me turn it over to Dan Kleiman to begin the discussion of it. And uh, before I do, let me just thank you all again for, uh, for joining us today. Thanks a lot. With that, let's turn to the substance of the report, which I'll present along with my co-authors, Christine Lee and Joshua Fitt, who are respectively Associate Fellow and Research Assistant with the Asia Pacific Security Program, and Ben Fitzgerald, who's an Adjunct Senior Fellow with the CNAS Defense Program. I'll speak first to why the United States needs to enhance cooperation with allies around technology innovation and protection. Christine will address America's current engagement with allies in both of these areas. Josh will cover design principles for an alliance innovation base, and Ben will provide an overview of some of our concrete policy recommendations. 
I want to start now with the big picture, which is this. The United States is losing its innovation edge to China. The United States is steadily losing ground in the race against China to pioneer the most important technologies of the 21st century. China has vastly increased domestic research and development expenditures and supported the growth of new cutting edge industries. It has also invested in fostering science and engineering talent. By contrast, the United States has failed to undertake a comparable effort domestically. Moreover, Washington for decades largely overlooked Beijing's systematic effort to acquire US technology through tactics ranging from legal investments to cyber-enabled economic espionage. With technology a critical determinant of future US military advantage, a key driver of economic prosperity, and a potent tool for promoting different types of governance, the stakes could not be higher for Washington. In this contest, America's global network of alliances is a unique asset. China's bid for technology supremacy benefits, of course, from scale due to the size of China's population and its economy. The only way for the US to tip scale back in its favor is to deepen cooperation with allies. And let me give you one very concrete example, R&D spending. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, which comprises the US, most of NATO, many American allies in the Indo-Pacific, and a handful of other developed economies, collectively outspends China by more than 250% in, in gross R&D. But if you only take the US and China in gross R&D, the two are already neck and neck. US allies, of course, though, provide more than just scale. In today's new era of strategic competition, American allies have emerged as leaders in specific technology areas that are core to future US prosperity and military advantage, such as 5G, autonomy, and microelectronics. Closer cooperation with allies will enable the US to tap into pockets of technological expertise that it now lacks domestically. At the same time, this diffusion of innovation also places a premium on aligning US and ally efforts to protect technology. Put simply, technology protection requires a collective effort. Through more rigorous investment screening, updated export controls, and closer scrutiny of research collaborations involving China, the United States can unilaterally become a harder target. However, unless coordinated with allies, such policies will feature major seams that Beijing can exploit. China will acquire technology from American allies that it can no longer easily extract from the United States. And for Washington, the net result will simply be barriers to innovation and foregone economic opportunities with little to show in terms of actual technology secured. Ultimately though, American allies require positive incentives. It can't all be about China. Washington has made a concerted push to get its allies to step up tech protection against China, but the potential economic costs of such measures, and for some, the very real fear of Beijing's retaliation renders progress slow and uneven. Ultimately, to present a compelling case for technology protection, the United States needs to offer a series of positive benefits that offset some of the short-term costs allies will incur. Absent this affirmative agenda, U.S. efforts to reduce China's access to the innovation ecosystems of its allies will fall short. An alliance innovation base, in our view, could provide a platform for incentivizing enhanced technology protection while broadening the public conversation with allies from countering China to capitalizing on shared technology opportunities with, our, with U.S. allies. With that, I want to hand it over to Christine Lee, my colleague and co-author, to speak more to America's current approach to allies on both tech protection and tech innovation. Christine, over to you.
So thank you very much for that introduction, Dan. Um, in recent years, the U.S. government has certainly stepped up engagement with allies on both the innovation and technology protection fronts in response to concerns about China. Uh, but these efforts, as Dan has suggested, largely remain a work in progress, uh, particularly as its approach doesn't yet effectively pair innovation with protection. So in the few minutes that I have today, I'd like to briefly survey America's current approach to allies, starting first on the innovation side, then moving to technology protections and highlighting points of strength and weakness for both dimensions. So what is the US currently doing to work with allies on innovation? Um, the United States has a range of mechanisms for collaborating with allies, some of which date back to the end of the Cold War, uh, while others have been spurred on by more recent concerns about US-China tech competition. Um, and these mechanisms roughly fall into three buckets of activities. The first is technology scouting. Uh, the second is multilateral and bilateral cooperation frameworks. And the third is rapid innovation initiatives. And so I'll quickly run through an example of each of these categories. So first on the technology scouting front, prominent programs like the Foreign Comparative Testing Program have been around since the 1980s and are predominantly focused on uh, the, procure the procurement of foreign technologies. Um, essentially, DOD nominates foreign items to undergo expedited testing and evaluation processes. Um, and certainly this introduces structural efficiencies and serves as a concrete point of entry for trusted foreign vendors. Um, but given that the FCT is a procurement program, it's by design focused on filling near-term needs um, rather than supporting long-term cooperation around innovation. Um, moreover, without an effective data sharing mechanism um, across US allies, uh, there may be re redundancies or missed opportunities in terms of the discovery and matchmaking of technological capabilities. Second, in terms of multilateral cooperation frameworks, uh, the National Technology and Industrial Base, or NTIB, is probably one of the most comprehensive frameworks for structured cooperation among U.S. allies to date. Um, it includes the United States, obviously, Canada, Australia, and the UK. And the US is able to play to its strength as a, a system integrator within the framework. Um, but unfortunately, the US export control system, which I'll discuss later, remains a barrier to more seamless integration of the industrial bases of the four member countries. Third and finally, with regards to rapid innovation initiatives, the DIU is one prominent model, which we'll hear more about during the fireside chat later today. Um, another that I'll discuss now is the newly formed Allied Prototype Initiative, um, which established at the beginning of this year, focuses on cooperation with a set of trusted allies around discrete projects involving technologies such as AI and hypersonic weapons. Um, the API seems well positioned to support innovation over a medium term time horizon and features a fairly wide ranging scope of priority technology areas. Um, but whether the initiative can amount to a broader framework for tech cooperation among allies uh, that's galvanized by a common strategic imperative remains an open question. So moving to the second dimension of the discussion, uh, America's approach to technology protections. Today, American engagement with allies on protection also employs multiple instruments 
including multilateral regimes, the extraterritorial reach of American law, um, and finally, the, and finally, bilateral and multilateral uh, consultations. And I'll quickly run through each of these categories. So first, the U.S. participates in four multilateral export control regimes, which are listed on the slide displayed. The Wassenaar arrangement has the most inclusive and expansive mandate as it brings together 42 of the world's most technologically advanced democracies, as well as a, a non-democracy, namely Russia. Um, but this inclusivity is precisely what imposes significant constraints as decisions within Wassenaar are driven by consensus among its disparate membership. And so this um, by nature precludes a focus on China and constrains its ability to rapidly update export control lists as technologies evolve. Um, secondly, it's important to consider the extraterritorial extra reach of American domestic laws and regulations, uh, particularly pertaining to its export control system, which directly shapes how U.S. allies protect technology. A prime example of this is the International Traffic and Arms Regulation, or ITAR, which controls how certain allies use U.S. defense-related goods, knowledge, and services. Um, unfortunately, ITAR fails to effectively distinguish between U.S. allies and other countries, um, and this has generated uh, significant obstacles to tech cooperation between the United States and its closest allies. Finally, uh, to better align technology protection with allies, Washington is also leveraging bilateral and minilateral consultations. Uh, notably, for example, the multilateral action on sens sensitive technologies or mass process uh, promotes information sharing and best practices across a group of 15 advanced industrial nations. Um, going forward, these, these consultations with allies could play an important capacity building function um, to ensure that convergent threat perceptions, if achieved, can actually lead to uh, concrete and meaningful action. Um, but while consultations with allies can help close the gap in threat perceptions, um, these, these discussions ultimately lack positive incentives for allies to take economically painful steps in the near term um, involving China, such as foregoing tech investment limiting exports and, and research collaborations. So finally, to sum up, uh, what stands out most is that uh, there's no mechanism for engaging US allies that can singularly serve as an alliance innovation base today. Um, and there isn't really a comprehensive model on the technology protection side either. Um, so to build this community of technology innovation and protection in concert with allies, the US needs a more expansive toolkit that's grounded in a deep understanding of the United States' allies' perspectives, as well as a clear set of guiding principles, which Josh will discuss next. Thanks, Christine, for that rundown of Washington's approach. Um, so armed with our analysis of the strengths and weaknesses of America's current engagement in this area, as well as the insights from our case studies of a diverse set of US allies, we developed the following five design principles for creating the Alliance Innovation Base concept. First, the Alliance Innovation Base needs to have a flexible architecture. Washington should promote cooperation among allies through a variety of bilateral and minilateral ties in parallel, including collaboration in which the United States is not at the center. 
if the network of relationships is adaptable and organic, allies with a wide spectrum of technological capabilities and varying threat perceptions can all be accommodated, work together, and benefit from the Alliance Innovation Base. Next, the Alliance Innovation Base must provide economic incentives to allies. This is because naturally stricter technology protection measures cause an economic cost, even though those measures are vital to national security. So to counteract that, Washington should implement steps to ensure that allies remain incentivized to adopt these tougher measures for, by example, providing a series of benefits accessible to allies as they take these concrete steps in the right direction on that front. Third, uh, technology collaboration should be centered around solving discrete operational and technical challenges, not based on specific geopolitical threats. Uh, this is because not all allies rank their threat priorities the same way. So by focusing on solving shared problems, allies with different perceived primary threats, uh, but with similar challenges can still work together to innovate. And some promising areas of collaboration include improving ISR capabilities, particularly over vast geographic areas like an ocean or desert. Uh, establishing more trusted foundries that build semiconductors and enhancing military network resiliency. So those are just a few examples from the report that we identified as potential areas of cooperation that are not specific to any one threat, but are answers to pr problems shared by many allies. So next, by promoting a mindset of benefiting together, we hope that the Alliance Innovation Base can chip away at unreasonable preferences for spending and procuring domestically. The bias for domestically produced materials is strong in the United States and several allies and inevitably inhibits deeper technology cooperation. So getting buy-in from countries with these deep-seated preferences will be difficult unless the collaboration spurred by the Alliance Innovation Base benefits everyone together by providing fast and distributed dividends to those involved. And finally, the momentum in support of the Alliance Innovation Base must come from all stakeholders throughout society. So we acknowledge that protectionist mindsets and short-term costs of tougher technology protection will impose significant inertia on efforts to move the concept forward but by heavily engaging with the stakeholders involved and showcasing how the benefits far outweigh the costs, the executive branch will hopefully assuage many of those concerns. So with that, I will hand things back over to Ben, who will walk through some of our report's recommendations for Washington that we developed within that framework. Thanks, Josh. So any project that involves the word innovation needs to guard strongly against happy buzzwords and a lack of substance. So we were very focused in this project on having clear recommendations from the beginning. And for those of you who are looking at the report um, directly, the recommendations start on page 24 inside there. So feel free to reference that. Um, we had five major categories of recommendation and I'll just speak briefly to that and allow you to to read the, the, the more detailed um, recommendations uh, in the fullness of time. 
So the first thing that we wanted to focus on is strengthening America's toolkit for technology engagement. Here we're focused on adding to existing good ideas because the United States has sought to um, engender technological collaboration for years. We're just arguing that it needs to be at a, a new and more strategic scale. So we think that we need to bolster and add to organizations like the Office of Naval Research Global. Uh, we need to expand the foreign comparative test program that Christine was talking about, not just in terms of the size, but in terms of its strategic focus um, and providing support that goes beyond specific programs of record. Uh, we further believe that it's critical to add a technology scouting responsibility to the role of defense attaches we already have this strong network of highly experienced and educated military professionals deployed around the world. It would be relatively straightforward to add an additional um, uh, responsibility to their existing roles. Uh, and we also think that it's critical to add an international focus to the startup and innovation focused offices that already exist in, in, in the DOD. For example, the Defense Innovation Unit, it doesn't need to be limited to that organization but given its um, early track record, we think that that's a good place to start. Second, we think that it's important to build ally awareness and capacity. During our travels, we were really struck by the impact of American work on analyzing and describing the efforts, particularly by China, to stymie or, or, or directly steal our work on innovative technologies. Sharing that information once it's been developed is inexpensive and incredibly valuable. So to do that, we recommend upgrading informa information sharing with allied governments with a particular emphasis on sharing granular information like technology protection lists. That was something we heard in a couple of countries that sharing that information would be really helpful. We want to promote um, a broad-based awareness of China's actions. We're already seeing great work from the action officer level in the Pentagon that's yielding real action from amongst our allies. Uh, but that needs to be upgraded to like a serious public diplomacy campaign, we think. And we also want to build ally capacity to protect technology. The United States has been learning some painful lessons and we've improved our capability. We want to make sure that we're sharing those lessons as we move forward. Um, and, and then um, beyond the, um, the importance of building ally awareness and capacity, we think it's important to launch new collaborate, collaboration platforms. So we should establish a bilateral national security innovation fund. Uh, we also think that we that there is a lot of opportunity in relatively short order to form a military test facility consortium. Um, I'm a little bit biased being born and raised in Australia, but Australia has excellent testing facilities in this regard. For example, the Woomera range is larger than the entirety of the Israeli landmass. Uh, we should absolutely make use of that to the maximum extent practicable. Uh, for whether that's for hypersonics or other sorts of capabilities that need range. We also see a significant potential to launch a cross-national platform to build new companies, uh, leveraging the, the strong interest in supporting startups amongst all of these allies. Fourth, we want to create positive incentives for technology protection. Uh, we want to reduce barriers to investment in the U.S. for allies who are committed to technology protection. We want to invite U.S. allies to join something like an ITAR-free zone the national technology and industrial base that Christine mentioned earlier is an excellent way to start framing that out. Um, but we want to see something that's more robust than just those four nations. Um, and then we think that we really need to take a serious look at the Buy American Act. Uh, and we recognize that these are deeply sensitive topics. Certainly in my time working at the Senate Armed Services Committee, 
the hardest thing to talk about rationally was the bio, was bio issues of Buy America. Um, but we need to recognize that um, our future advantages will be based on collaboration among allies and that the protections that kind of made sense in the 20th century when the U.S. could generate and maintain technological advantage on its own may not make sense now or in the future. And so we need to raise barriers against those who are working against us and lower barriers for those who help us succeed. Uh, and, and we need to find a way to, to um, generate a constituency for that conversation and move it forward. The fifth thing that we focused on here is leveraging the US-Japan alliance. Uh, I'm not gonna go into too much detail on that here. We have a fantastic panel coming up uh, in just a few minutes where we'll be able to, to, to talk that through uh, just after a break. And so with that, I'm going to pause and hold, hand back over to my colleagues. Thank you, Ben, for that overview of some of our recommendations. We have a little over five minutes left in the current segment, so we're going to open it up to Q&A. Just a reminder, if you want to submit a question, you can do so through the Zoom Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. You can submit anonymously, though, of course, we welcome. Uh, if you want to attribute, we'll at least read off your name. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn to Josh to curate our questions. Josh, over to you. Thanks, Dan. Um, so we have our first question here from our fearless leader, Richard Fontaine. And he asks, what are the merits of integrating and coordinating the various existing programs and the ones we propose under one umbrella within government? Or should a thousand flowers bloom? That is a uh... An excellent question, something that we really grappled with writing the report and recognized that the machinery of government is not necessarily up for the task today. I suspect my co-authors and I may have aligned but not entirely convergent views. My own thoughts, and then I want to hand it off to some of my co-authors, is that there needs to be more coordination, uh, and you could imagine kind of an umbrella initiative, uh, but you would still want to manage it through like the National Security Council and basically have a process by which you'd be tasking out departments and agencies and kind of ensuring there was more coordination, but not having sort of a, a monolithic initiative that ultimately I think there's too many different actors in government who touch on what we've discussed on both tech innovation and protection. And if you tried to centralize it too much, I, I think you would certainly run into a lot of bureaucratic pushback. So I think there's opportunities for more coordination without kind of over-centralizing and maybe stifling some of the kind of bottom-up um, innovation. Any others want to take a stab at that from the co-authors? All right, then. I guess that will be our, our response. Um, let's go to the next question, Josh. Sure. Uh, recent interactions have shown that the Australian-Japanese link is one that both allies are interested in building further. Um, have we looked at those sorts of U.S.-Japan third ally relationships in this report? That's a great question. And we've thought a lot about both trilateral and minilateral cooperation. Just briefly, one of the inspirations for this Alliance Innovation Base idea is the kind of networked architecture in Asia um, that the US has promoted that involves American allies, um, often trilaterally, sometimes in, in other groupings that even exclude the US. So quickly for me, and then I want to hand it over to other panelists. I mean, we thought certainly about US-Japan plus um, actually, U.S.-Japan-Israel was one of the more interesting combinations that we thought about, given that both Japan and Israel 
are looking to deepen their own kind of tech cooperation. Um, so one of the recommendations we have is even looking at uh, kind of a collective foundry uh, where you'd have US, Japan, Israel building companies together. But Ben, I see you waving at me. So let's hand it over to Ben. I was actually just trying to work something on my screen, but I'm happy to have it take a stab at the question as well. Uh, look, if you had, I, I recall maybe 10 years ago, having conversations in the Australia, US, Japan context in Australia, and, and there was sort of a, a, a question mark about why we would be looking to do that from an Australian perspective. And that conversation's totally changed in uh, over the last few years. And I think we're in a much better place. So we, we definitely see the opportunity for that in terms of collaboration on, on, on in, in a variety of areas. Uh, and it's one of the things that we saw through this through this project was the opportunity to do that in some fairly creative ways. For example, looking at the rare earth metals um, situation where you've got Australia with significant potential for supply, Japan with significant potential for refining and processing, and the United States creating a strong demand signal. So I think the fundamentals for those, for the, for those three countries to work together are really strong. Um, and I think that there is more appetite for it today than, than I've seen certainly in the last 15 or 18 years. Uh, and, and so we should all go out of our way to, to, to seek to bring those various elements together while, there, while there's an opportunity and like a compelling um, problem or set of problems to organize around. Over. Excellent. Anyone else want to take a stab at that question? Otherwise, we'll go to, I think we have time for one more before we break for five minutes. We actually, uh, so we have a, sort of a follow-up to that, um, and this one was asked of Ben. So how do you judge DOD's appetite for new initiatives in the area? And given all the changes we've seen on the ATNL front over the past few years? Yeah, I'm happy to talk in detail about the reorganization <laughs> of ATNL, a project near and dear to my heart. Look, I, I think that there is, I think it's challenging in that uh, any sort of proposition like this would be welcomed um, by the department uh, who by and large want to get access to the best possible technology. Um, uh, I, I think also the department is focused on a number of things right now. So making sure that this gets into the top 10 list or the top five list will be a challenge right now, given other exigencies. Uh, and, and the other thing is I think that the department will um, assume uh, rightly or wrongly that there may not be support from uh, the Congressional Committees on Defense to support this. So I think that the, the way that we need to go about it is uh, making sure that there is either a demand signal or top cover provided from the Hill um, and that will help set priorities. And then I think um, uh, leadership at the senior most level to, to, to provide a way forward. And then I think that at the, at the action officer level, where, where work really uh, needs to take place. I think that there is an understanding of the benefits of this. And, and then you can get through some of that important blocking and tackling. But as always with these types of change, it's gonna be a question of leadership. Uh, and I think that there may, there may be some challenges there uh, with different interpretations in different parts of the building. Um, and I think the biggest thing that we need to figure out here is a, a perennial challenge in, in the Pentagon in any administration, which is the relationship between OSD policy and that mindset and the former OSD ATNL or now RE and ANS, where everyone is generally aligned under the NDS or whatever strategic document we have in place, but the, the objectives and the timeframes are a little bit different. So, similar to Christine's point about foreign comparative tests, the um, 
is the objective uh, alliance collaboration or is it delivering a specific outcome on a specific project on a deadline and balancing those things out can be difficult. Uh, and, and so I think putting the lens, putting the right lens on this is, is going to be important. As a, as a completely honest um, uh, example here, when we were working on the reorganization of ATNL, uh, I was not in any, any meetings where we talked about the Foreign Comparative Test Office, uh, even though it is one of the agencies or one of the organizations that is in the remit of that, uh, that reorganization. It was not something that we spent time thinking about. Uh, I'll stop talking there or I'll start reliving all of that conversation. Excellent. Well, thank you, Ben. And thank you, everybody, for your questions. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.